Hello, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to uh, today's Rope webinar. Um, today, we're going to be talking about uh, hotel branded residences and a little bit of an uh, uh, inside story. Um, today, I'm joined by uh, an old uh, friend and industry colleague, uh, Bill Barnett. Uh, many of our guests today will know Bill as managing director of C9 Hotel Works, one of the leading uh, hospitality business experts in the region. Uh, in today's webinar, Bill is going to be sharing with us uh, some uh, of the latest research he's been working on on the key trends in the branded residence sector and share some specific insights into the branded residence uh, business in the current Philippine marketplace. And we would love to be able to sort of have time to take questions. Obviously, we would welcome questions um, um, through the webinar, uh, but also by email and we can answer questions personally. But before we get into things, you know, uh, the coronavirus epidemic seems to be at a turning point in terms of spread as we speak. Um, still a little bit tough to understand how this is going to have an impact on the hospitality economy. Um, but we know it has a tangible, tangible impact on the hotel business with drop in booking pace, increased room cancellations, obviously uh, cancellation of many, many events. And, uh, you know, a lot of developers are, are, are facing a tremendous amount of pressure from uh, third parties, from uh, capital lenders and, and banks, etc. Um, you know, looking at the numerous hotel markets across Asia, hotels are now running single digit occupancy. The hotel industry is, is obviously well into the crisis and developers today clearly are beginning to look at uh, uh, alternative development options and we hope to address some of those things today. So good morning, Bill, and, and, and welcome to today's webinar. All right, good morning, Tim, and hello. Hi to everybody. I've got my coffee here and we're all set to go. I think, we're, you know, today's discussion, let's kind of drill down where we're going today. We're going to give a, an overview from a C9 perspective. We work from Japan through the Maldives, through all of Southeast Asia in hotels and hotel branded residences. So we're going to start on some research that we've done into Asia as well and then drill down into the Philippines. So bear with me because it's a, it's a broader story, which is eventually going to get very local in terms of a Philippine scenario. I think one thing we know about, and Tim talked about it before, is we're, you know, real estate, when does a narrative start? I think what happens is we, we may be talk, not talking about tomorrow, maybe it's the day after tomorrow, the week after tomorrow, the month after tomorrow, but we think certainly as, as the economies are starting to go back to business, what can we look forward to? And too often people say we're going where we've not been before, and I think that's nonsense because we've seen impacts before, and real estate is a cyclical industry. You know, it's like tourism as well. It's cyclical. And while we have a new normal, we can go back and learn from cycles. You know, after 9-11, America took their shoes off at airports and the world took their shoes off. There was a fear factor towards flying, but eventually people got back on airplanes. And again, people are going to get back into branded real estate or any real estate elements. It's just a matter of time and how that turns out to play. You know, what are those protocols for the industry, but also what are the trends? We can learn from 1997. We can learn from 2008, 2009 from the GFC. So I think that's kind of where we start our discussion today. And let's talk about branded residences on a global basis. You know, what's, a, what's key to us is if we talk on a global basis, one third of all global stock is located in Asia. And I think that's interesting because Asia, you know, again, after 19, after 2008, Basically, Asia led the economic recovery of the world, and this type of real estate or investment properties became much more popular. And I think if I go back to North America in the 1960s, leisure-type branded real estate certainly became an element because it was an object of desire. And whenever you have a, a developing consumer class or upper middle class, this is where branded real estate certainly comes into play. You know, so historically, we know where that's happening as well. And I think what's happening in terms of the broader terms, right now in our pipeline across Asia, we've got about 16,000 units across Asia. And I think this study was also focused on upscale through luxury tiers. And we'll talk about later where we see other trends, but what we've also seen in the past two years is that more affordable offerings are being demonstrated in the market now. We're seeing certainly price and size. With real estate, there's only two things that matter. How much does it cost to develop it? How much can you sell it at? So we're seeing more pressure, certainly after the GFC, on pricing, which is related to sizing as well. You know, we talk about the Asia market overview. It's interesting when we look at all these projects across Asia. You know, Thailand certainly is a, is a big leader there in terms of the number of pipeline projects. You know, top resort destinations, Phuket Valley, Phu Quoc in Vietnam, Pattaya, 
And then it was interesting because the past four or five years, we've seen more urban offerings, you know, in terms of Bangkok, KL, Manila. You walk around Manila and see the Grand Hyatt residences, other projects like this. You're seeing more urban type branded real estate, Jakarta as well. So these are key trends. In terms of the key branded players, you know, when we're talking about hotel groups, certainly we have groups like Marriott, you know, throughout their entire brand sphere who are working a lot on these. You know, we look at us, certainly Accor as well. Regional chains, like I've seen Ducet, you know, which is covering uh, quite a lot of Asia now, and we've seen them penetrate in the Philippines. We also have an emerging, IHG is another big player, certainly with Six Senses and Region under their belts. These are significant players. And certainly when we look at people like Rosewood as well, now we're seeing Rosewood projects even come to the pipeline in the Philippines. So again, these are key players. And when, when we look at pipeline projects by chain scale, we still see luxury at a large element, but we're seeing upscale and upper upscale grow in terms of the market share as well. So I think that's a new trend we're seeing in Asia. You know, we're seeing broader investment in those areas. When we look at the type of projects along urban versus resort, traditionally, if we'd go back 10 or 20 years ago to a Phuket model or a Bali model, we see a lot more resort style residences. But today when I go in Bangkok, I can see Four Seasons, I can see Mandarin Oriental, I can see other type luxury developers doing urban type of branded residences. So this certainly is a changing marketplace. The urban space is becoming uh, uh, well segmented in terms of branded residences as well. And I think, again, what we also see is rental versus non-management programs is we still see a, a propensity for people to want to rent these units. We still see projects where like the Grand Hyatt in BGC, they want to simply live there, but also in terms of a broader Asian perspective, these are also investment buyers. I think one thing we know about branded real estate is you have two types of buyers. You have yield buyers who want to buy into a hotel managed scheme, who want recurring yields and maybe the lifestyle benefits of usage. And you also have end users who want to live and have the prestige of real estate. So these are two different kinds of buyers and oftentimes two different kinds of projects. You know, I think certainly when we go back to unit types, again, two bedroom units are the most popular types when we talk about this. I think that's interesting because there's always an offset when you're developing a hotel on a hotel investment property. It's important to have equilibrium. Because a hotel owner comes and says, oh, I want to add some real estate as well, some branded real estate. They still own the hotel. They don't want to cannibalize. And if there's, you know, obviously in a hotel, the best yielding units are the standard rooms or the premium rooms. They don't want to say, you know, so their, their concept is if we want to shed the real estate off on, which we've sold already, we need to have our core hotel having the, the, these uh, entry-level hotel rooms. And they sell typically either the larger units, the two bedroom units, the three bedroom units off into a rental operation. So there's kind of, again, it's equilibrium. It's imperfect, but again, it goes back to when you're a developer saying, I want to do hotel branded residences, don't compete with yourself. You know, that, that's also key messaging. But also if you're selling yields to buyers, make sure it's commercially viable because if you're promising six, seven, eight percent returns, eight percent is not going to be achievable in our experience. But certainly on a five, six percent return, you've got to make sure that you can rent that unit at a good rate and be able to, to manage it as hotel inventory. I think something else when we look at where the hotel branded residences, we, we go from Japan, we go to the Philippines, we, even to the Maldives, we're seeing this type of product. You know, what's clear is we have certain countries where we're seeing more growth. Japan is growing. You know, we can go to the Alpine areas, Niseko down to Okinawa. Okinawa has as many uh, tourist arrivals as Hawaii. So it's a growing market. The Philippines has a lot of potential. Indonesia, certainly. Uh, Thailand and Malaysia. Malaysia has been bolstered by real estate in KL on an urban case basis. And one interesting perspective is we always talk about a brand premium. A hotel, a hotel operator will come and say, for, for a branded real estate, what is the premium? We see premiums traditionally, that's, they always say 20 to 30%. Now it's interesting when we look at research across the globe and, you know, we see similarities in different, different markets. And I think certainly when you have high-end real estate, we can see Niseko up there at 27%. We see Phuket at 21%. We do see projects where we have independent developers developing non-branded real estate in good locations and selling them well. So I think in terms of the, the general acceptance, 30%, it really matters market to market. It matters what's in the market, who you're competing against, and how to get that premium. But what it does demonstrate generally is that global brands or hotel brands add value or premiums to business. And the other aspect not shown here would be probably in terms of sales pace or transaction pace, it's going to be faster in our experience when we look at these markets. Now, I want to talk about Philippine hotel branded residences market. And 
while we're in 2020, I think it's interesting to go backwards and say, you know, probably when we're looking at international tourist arrivals, are these a spur of demand? And one thing certainly has been the story of tourism in in the country is that it's quite uh, it's quite uh, robust in terms of growing. So that's for us. Majority of the projects in the Philippines are not investment oriented; they're end user oriented. The Sheraton in Cebu, uh, the Grand Hyatt in BGC, these type of projects. And what it says is there's a lot of untapped opportunity in tourism and tapping into into investment type units uh, in projects which are not being sold in the Philippines. Every other country, Thailand, Indonesia, have captured this trend. We haven't seen that flow through necessarily in the Philippines yet. I think talking about generally terms of you know what's happened in the marketplace, I think branded residence development right now when we're tracking across the Philippines, we're looking at 12 projects with about 3,331 units. Historically, branded residences are not a new product. You know, if you go back to the mid-1990s, you saw a lot of condo tells coming up in, say, in Makati or the edges of Makati. These really substituted. One thing we know about this thing is condo tell or branded residences perform very well when there's an undersupply of hotel rooms. If you go back to the under to the early 1990s and late or the mid-1990s, there was an undersupply of mid-scale hotel rooms in Makati or the broader area. And this filled the gap quickly. You saw a lot of condo tell projects come into the real estate market, but it was also the top of a real estate cycle when you had developers who could sell this type of product. And typically we always see that more branded residences schemes for investment come at the top of a real estate cycle. So we can go backwards to that. Interesting in a Philippine perspective is Amanpulu to this day remains the key benchmark for luxury resort villas in the marketplace, but it's really the only demonstrated one at that level. You know, my question always to, to, to real estate people in the Philippines is why aren't there more luxury projects here? Amanpulu was successful. And there's various reasons for that. But in terms of when we look at other landscapes, Phuket, Phuket has over $3 billion of high-end real estate. Even the Maldives has Saniva Johnny and Saniva Fushi, which sell multi-million dollar villas. So I think we still think there's a tremendous opportunity in the Philippines for an Amanpulu type project. And I think certainly when we go backwards and we look at how condo tells in the Philippines happened in the mid 1990s and what happens is it also points out to a life cycle. Because in the mid 1990s, most of those condo tell projects today are not really functioning as hotel units anymore because they outuse their lifestyle. What happened is there was never the connection by the developers to say these are hotel rooms and not just service departments or condominiums and the product became outmoded over time people built mid-scale hotels and if you're competing with a holiday inn against a condo hotel again i'm sorry the condo hotel in the cases of what was developed with a small kitchen cheaper finish and everything else is no longer competitive so i think the lessons learned from the 1990s and even the early 2000s is that if you're building an investment product its competitors are Realists are hotels. You're competing against a, a full service hotel, so your product has to be tainted towards that. And that's a very important lesson to be learned from that time period. And alternative models, you know, our real estate models, timeshare and fractional ownership, we see a lot more in Thailand, we see it in Vietnam, we see it in, in Indonesia. But I think certainly from a Philippines perspective, again, there's a securities and securities rules which preclude this because you're selling an investment type product. So we haven't seen the same growth in timeshare, vacation ownership, fractional ownership. I know Century Properties had a Novotel implement which was sold very successfully, but also I guess the barriers to entry of doing those type of things, given you need to gear your salespeople up to be selling securities and everything else, it takes a lot more might from the developer. And then foreign property ownership, that's still a primary factor because when we see condo tells, of course, you know that 60% of units have to be sold to Filipinos, 40% threshold for foreigners as well. But in terms of villas and this type of resort product, it's difficult to transfer and you have to sell on a leasehold basis. That doesn't mean leasehold can't be successful to sell to foreigners. I live in Thailand. Thailand has a rich history of leasehold projects being sold to foreign buyers. So again, that is an untapped market for us. And we think leasehold ownership in resort villas or hotel units will grow. And so there is more untapped potential. And if we look at the prop properties today, we're skipping around a little, but certainly when we look at, you know, again, we're looking at the luxury really dominate that. But again, we're seeing upper upscale and upscale creep more into the model. You know, in terms of hotel branded residences by location, 
again, urban versus resort locations. I think this is interesting for us because we're not seeing the resort, you know, the number of resort properties. I guess if I look at places like Boracay, I can understand this because Boracay, you have title land and you have land declaration land. It's hard to sell deeded real estate or condominium hotels in certain properties of Boracay. That would be a place, it, how that happens in the future when Boracay moves off onto Katik land and these type of areas where there aren't similar problems. I think we're going to see that number jump. And our estimate is that the resort market for branded residencies in the Philippines is undersupplied. And we see more ability to develop that type of product. Okay, let's talk about market opportunities. Let's go back to market opportunities. And one thing we see also is post COVID is the start of a new real estate cycle. And this is very important to me because what's gonna be the issues facing forward? We can say, we don't know, but we know that developers are gonna face liquidity issues. And if a developer is developing hotel, he's gonna say, maybe I, I need a lower budget or I need to break it up so that I can get some type of other, I want to mitigate my return and I want to also mitigate my cash investment. One thing about real estate with branded residences projects, you're able to craft these in such a way that you can lower, you know, a hotel could take eight, nine, 10 years to get a return. It's capital intensive. Where mixed use, once you add the real estate element, you're able to get early returns to a project on a blended basis. You really start seeing higher IRRs of the project as well. That's not to mean that you want to start selling all the units. Because I think something we understand is the condo tells where they sell 100% of the projects. You can drive through parts of Makati today and see condo tell projects from the 1990s when they've, you know, they've, they've gone from being four-star properties down to two-star properties because nobody's investing. It goes back to the cost of equilibrium. You know, a hotel is capital intensive. You need data. You still need a developer in the picture to maintain hotel standards because when you have a hotel owner, they can dictate that we need to redo our, our, our restaurants. We need a new type of gym. We need to create yoga studios. We need to create wellness. But when you have 100 owners who simply care about their yields, they're not going to reinvest in the property. So again, it goes back to, to equilibrium. And I think in the Philippines or any other market in Asia, we've seen big branded developers at the luxury level operators saying, okay, out of 100%, if there's a hotel existing, we'll do 30%. 20% of residences. We see that area creep up to 50 in some cases if it's expensive real estate. But certainly in our experience, doing 100% of a condo hotel project is a recipe for disaster because 10 years later, you're gonna have 100 owners who don't wanna be reinvesting in a property and you go from a four star to a three star to a two star to nothing. It's not competitive. Economic conditions are gonna put pressure on pricing points. And that's something where it goes a little bit of odds, especially when you have a hotel and you have branded residencies in the same complex, because if you have a hotel standard room of 40 square meters, you're looking at residential and say, Jesus, you know, we, we want to be selling these units at, at $100,000, you know, you know, you know, you know, and again, there's only two prices. How much does it cost to develop and how much does it cost to sell it? You know, what's the pricing points? So you have really parity. So you have to look at saying the real estate unit, you know, the branded residences has to not compete with a hotel unit, but it can't be too big either. So I think the designing or the crafting of these projects is very important. So it's the, the devil's in the detail because this has living components. It's important when we go back and say that having hotel residences in your hotel project is quite a good thing for a hotel operator and owner, because if I've got 100 hotel keys and 50 hotel residences, I have 150 potential units of F&B customers. I have 150 potential customers for my wellness, for my gyms, other things. It creates a broader base of business and you have loyal customers already in your complex. You know, hotels struggle now with, with external, you know, you, you know, once you have the smartphone, it changed your competitive landscape entirely and hotels, full service hotels struggle for customers. But this part is part and parcel solved when you have residences because you have people in house who are your potential customers. I think what the other trend we see is that certainly in Southeast Asia's mid-scale and upper mid-scale tiers to take on branded residences. It's a natural. And in the post-COVID case, you're going to see more people developing who have the appetite to, to, to develop mid-scale or upper mid-scale hotels, maybe not luxury. And they're also going to want to, to mitigate their, their development risk. And I think we're going to see more entries certainly in the short term at this level because it's simply more appetite focused for investors or real estate companies in the market. So we see that as growth. Ultra branded luxuries, again, I go back to the Almond case, I can go back and why isn't there an ultra branded hotel residential project? We've seen the Raffles Fairmont as an early adopter. 
I think there's lessons learned both sides of that in terms of how they mix the hotels together with people looking at investment, but also uh, uh, full-time owners as well. And, you know, again, there's cases to be made for both, but I think there's an opportunity within Manila and perhaps Cebu as well for ultra luxury at the high end for hotel branded scenario. And by no means are we saying for developers that it always has to be a hotel element. Hotel brands are an added value in terms of added services and adding pricing points and long-term longevity. But we see many cases where there's these standalone projects which are hotel branded for full-time residences, which operate very well. So it doesn't always have to be the same thing. And you also have cases where we have designer brands. We have people like you. We have other hotel brands which will give you a designer brand for the project and be an overlay for selling the real estate. Again, in a COVID-19 case, it's for developers to say, how can we add value or how can we increase sales pace or recreate our products to be have a USP? And certainly in terms of positioning these products, I think something we're going to see is developers who say, tomorrow I'm about to go to market. What am I going to do with my project? How am I going to find a niche market? And one thing we know about niches is that whenever there's stress or market malaise is also opportunity on the other scale. So I think it's interesting to see how many developers say, maybe we add a brand, a hotel brand to our properties. Maybe we split it up. You know, we've seen in a hotel experience, more trend towards complex hotels over the past few years. It makes a lot of sense. You know, we see certainly the Erewhon group in uh, Thailand, whereby they're building Novotels together with Macures and Ibises. It's interesting because from a developer standpoint, having two it acknowledges two different segments in a single single high-rise building and saying that we can have two different customers. And rather, that, that means they're competitive on price because rather than pulling rates down for a 400-room hotel, you have 200 keys, which are a budget hotel, where you can have entry level and 200 keys at the higher level too. And when you develop a property, you're developing at a lower cost because you're not replicating backup house. It's a more efficient offering. But certainly building segmentation within a project makes a lot more sense. I think after COVID-19, people saying, we don't just need 400 apartments. We don't need 400 residences. How can we split this up into segmentation for a successful project? I think, Tim, maybe we've got some uh, questions you have to talk about. So thank you, Bill. Yes, certainly some excellent insights. Yeah, we've had some uh, interesting questions coming in from um, some of our guests today. So I'm just going to um, read a couple out and let's, let, let's see how we can deal with them. Um, first one would be, um, um, in, in the current situation um, with, with, with COVID and the real estate markets, I mean, is, it, is converting a potential new development, um, taking some of the inventory and putting it into a branded residence component going to be a viable option, given the fact that you know, rental, uh, rental yield or returns for an investor could be lower because there's going to be compression of, of rates until markets come back. So there's a number of questions come in on the same theme um, from some of our guests about, you know, yeah. how in reality uh, is this going to stack up? And, and when do you think um, 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 the, the value proposition is really going to show, uh, show its benefit to developers? I, I think Tim, the starting off point to be is who, who are your potential buyers of the property? And one thing we're going to know is that uh, we saw the same thing after the GFC is that uh, property investors adjust their return expectations to lower levels. And we think post-COVID, the expectation or the appetite for rental yields when people look, you know, and that also connects to who your customers are and are they mortgaging the property? Are they creating bank, bank financing? What is that bank financing? Because how are they going to return that money? So you really have to focus on the customers. What we think is there's a good match when you have recurring income coming at hotel levels because hotel occupancies and rates maybe outperforming a broader rental package. So you kind of have to look at, is this, mar is this product gonna be better on long-term let? Is that market gonna grow? Or as a tourism or travel perspective, are the yields gonna be better and my buyers are gonna be able to meet their financing needs? And I think that goes back to everything, it goes down to what the fundamental picture is. You kind of have to look at the case and there's not one size, size fits all, but I think certainly in terms of branded residency, it fits a certain mold where you have recurring income coming in and you're not maybe perhaps making 6% yields. Expectations were pre-COVID 6%. Maybe my yields now are saying, I want to meet my mortgage payments. I want to meet my debt obligations. And that's okay, because I'll take a long-term view of that. And if, they, if you can't rent it out short, you know, on a long-term basis, look at an accommodation model. But again, 
a rental model for hotels is a function of the hotel market. So your, your hospitality fundamentals have to be matching. You have to look at things with the hotel eyes and you also have to look at it with real estate eyes. But for me, for a developer to say, I want to break up my offerings instead of trying to sell mass amount of units in the real estate market, I have different customers. I have customers, maybe I'll have foreign customers. I might have Chinese buyers for condominiums who want to buy an investment product. I might have other buyers who would buy on leasehold, you know, basis as well for conversions, or I have other buyers in the market. So you really have to break it down. Like any business, you have to segment your customer basis. You don't, have, you don't, you should only have one customer buying your real estate. So focus on that. Tim? All right, thank, thanks, Bill. I mean, yeah, thank, and, and to our guests, you're on fire today. I have so many questions, I don't know which one to pick next, but I'm trying to consolidate a few together here. We've got one here, which is um, really themed around uh, mixed use branded residences with whole ownership, um, resort condominiums in, in a beachfront environment. And I guess you've alluded to some of those, um, but um, the, the questions really um, relate to, um, I mean, do we believe that there's going to be uh, an opportunity and, and, and de demand for these? And where do we think the, the, the key destinations could be where these, these, these hospitality, real estate, mixed use developments can, uh, can, be, can, can, can be profitable? Well, I think it also goes back to, I mean, you know, you're certainly destinations like uh, Cebu, destinations Bohol with our new uh, international airport, Davao. You know, airlift, airlift is everything. Airlift for tourism. You know, you can't stay there if you can't get there. Palawan now is increasing in that profile. But I think the one thing we always go back to in locations is it has to work as a hotel. If you're selling hotel branded residences or something else. One thing we worry about a little is we've seen some projects in the Philippines where they offer a hotel brand for not only the hotel, but also for the branded real estate. And you always have to be aware that even uh, that when you are selling real estate with a hotel brand on it, even though you can say you're not going to allow the, uh, the buyers to rent it out. You know, if we go to certain other developments years later and say in Vietnam and look at Da Nang and look at projects which are sold under a hotel brand, all of a sudden we see people, individuals renting out their units on Airbnb and everything else. And I think you, you need a holistic version where you're having residences and hotel together because if you sell to a lot of customers, despite no matter what you try, the customers still come back and start saying, we're going to start renting on Airbnb. And if a hotel rates $200 a night, and you have a uh, buyer who's renting their unit you know, on Airbnb for $100 a night, it undermines your, your whole scheme. So you have, really have to look carefully at your rental schemes and not say, again, one size doesn't fit all, but you really have to craft your covenants and craft your project to, to understand that you, you know, element yeah. as well. So I think that certainly is, you know, there's pluses and minuses to that. But going back to location, you know, for urban, lo you know, for resort destinations, can't stay there if you can't get there. It's really the primary locations where you can, you're able to get dynamic real estate that works as hotels. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I mean, even more so today as, as you know, flight airlift is going to be challenging. We, you know, given the fact that we also have a strong domestic economy here in the Philippines for, for tourism, you know, those destinations that, that uh, um, are driving distance to major cities, I think, are actually going to uh, see a lot of benefits in the short term. So, sure, sure. I mean, we... You know, we'd even go to, go to places like New Clark and we see projects up there with branded residential, which certainly, again, it goes into going with the new airports coming up and better transportation links. These are other areas. So it's not always just the beach. You know, one fallacy is it's just about the beach. And we see inland areas having those same opportunities because the other day, uh, driving distance is still a dr dynamic driver of demand. In, in Thailand, we have Hua Hin, which is a huge... Uh, branded residences market as well. And, you know, again, ties will drive because they can drive the whole family. And for Filipinos, when you have the family, driving distance is a big thing. So if you draw a circle around uh, uh, Metro Manila, look at places like Clark, look at uh, Tagaytay, you, you know, look at other places in terms of that. There is opportunity for that as well. Yep. A bit, we, have, we have a lot of um, sort of similar questions here with regarding, I mean, uh, a brand and, and, and type of product, Bill. So I know you've mentioned that, you know, the, the industry generally in the past has focused on a relatively high-end product in resorts. You, you mentioned Amapulo, Hyatt, we've seen Shangri-La here, um, we've seen the Alilas and the Six Senses, um, you know, um, and, and we know the quality they can bring. But, you know, clearly as the market's changed, I mean, there's a lot of questions relating to what, firstly, what type of brand or product is, is, is suitable for the Philippines or what do you think would work here? But more importantly, as we begin to filter down into, in, in, into the upper mid-market sectors, into, in, in, into the more, should we say, affordable lifestyle brands for millennials, I mean, um, there's some questions on what 
brands do we think would fit into the the, the new age economies post COVID? Yeah. I mean, I think you know, certainly in terms of I mean, there's always with him, you know, there, there always is an overhang towards a. Uh, American brands or American associated brands like it or not have always been quite successful. The Marriott brands, you know, these type of properties are well known. They perform well in the Philippines. I think the loyalty card is well known as well. And one interesting thing about hotel brands is now we're starting to see Accor as a leader in that introducing their loyalty card into engaging the customer. Traditionally, the ability of a hotel company to come and say, we want to start, you know, maybe when you, um, Maybe when you buy a unit, we're going to give you a premium loyalty card for our chain, and we're going to give you, you know, you know, a million points or a thousand points or something like that. Is that's added value too because you're you're bringing them into the brand. Selling the brand is not just a sign or a logo; it's to engage the customer from day one. And I think that's where when you say what brands are appropriate, brands who can engage your customers from the point of sale, not just the point of turnover of the property and add value in a broader scope. Because especially with, with uh, resort real estate, people do like to move around. They may say, I want to exchange my properties or I have an interest towards traveling in other locations as well. But you know, going backwards to, to upper mid-scale type properties, we see, we see you know, the world of the Hyatt Regencies, of the Novotels, of the Holiday Inns as prime spots because these are family accommodation. You know, these are family friendly. They, they, they go to a broader dynamic, you know, holiday and sweets and everything else in Makati. We see how popular that product is. So fundamentally, you're able to bring family as well. And you can't ignore the Filipino factor. Philippines special market, you know, in terms of family travel. So anything which is going to be, you know, you can sleep a family of four. You can sleep a friend of family of five. You know, friends, friends traveling together against that larger accommodation. I think where the mistake is in the Philippines, when we look back to the 90s, just developing these service departments, it wasn't, they didn't take a view on developing a hotel standard or this type of accommodation where you have larger groups of people. But certainly group, group of people is one thing. And millennial travel, we've done a lot of research in China recently for Thailand, which is concluded for Vietnam. And the first travelers are, are millennial travelers. They're, they're 20 to 30 years old. They're digitally focused. They're independent travelers. And these guys will book in. So pro properties, you know, we go back to the Alilas and these type of uh, brands as well. They're attractive to that audience as well. So there's opportunity at boutique levels, institutional boutique levels for something where a little more style to it, a little more DNA as well. So certainly upper, upper mid-scale properties and boutique brands would be ideal for branded residences. So, yeah. I mean, and, and, and very valid points there. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. I mean, given the propensity of, of um, uh, Filipino um, OFWs working overseas, investing heavily back into the Philippines in their own market or when they travel home, they don't come here um, any more than two, three, four weeks a year. So if they do have a, a product, they, A, they want to get some sort of rental yield on it, but more importantly, to build in flexibility of usage with some of the, 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 the major brands loyalty programs, I think is a significant selling uh, proposition, which we've seen obviously in the, um, uh, in, 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 the, in the vacation ownership business with, with Interval International and RCI. So I think that's a, a big consideration. There, there is a couple of questions on, 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 on type of product and yeah. just maybe you could just go back into that again in terms of product size, yeah. as you mentioned, you know, think, the importance of yeah, room yeah. size, family yeah. usage and things like yeah. that. And I think that's a big consideration yeah. given the propensity yeah. for Asian families generally to travel yeah. in larger groups. Yeah. And I think well, you're kind of kind of ramping out of that one interesting phenomenon for us is you know the resort market is different from the urban market you know uh, property buyers are different their behavior is different uh, resort real estate is an emotional buy it, it's you know you may have a great holiday there the more times you go to that location you want to buy property it's your your motivation is different it's okay that you're going to make some money but you're you seem to leave your rationality at the door it's emotional buy people say i want it because I can afford it. It's a second house, a holiday house. It's a sense of that, uh, maybe the usage or the prestige of the brand, whereby urban real estate is more about the, the pure yields. It's about the total number of square meters. What's my return? Or am I going to live there or something else? It's a different criteria. So it's important to understand those are two different products and two different markets. You know, again, branded real estate is just not one thing. It's segmented property buyers. It's segmented products. Not one size fits all. But I think probably, generally speaking, there's a lot of learnings from mistakes we see in terms of a branded, say you're buying into a branded uh, a hotel residences, and the understanding is too often developers will say, my competitive set is developer A, B, C, D, E, and his sizes are this, and they'll have a kitchen, and they'll have this, and that's my competitive set. But in reality, the buyer is buying a hotel investment. Your competitive set are the hotels around it. 
they're not hotel condos or they're not branded residences, they're actual hotels. So if I'm competing with a 40 square meter room in a service department studio versus a hotel, I expect the same rates. I'm being sold that that rate should be the same. But if the product's different and you have, you know, instead of having carpeting, you're having floor, you know, you're having parquet floor tiles. I have a kitchen whereby in the, in the hotel product, I have a spacious mini bar or something else. So you have to understand that as well. I think the, you know, the other side is that from a real estate, you have to understand your buyer too. And the buyer still, look, the buyer still thinks they're buying real estate. And so they're going to look and say, but where's the kitchen and everything else? So again, you have to rationalize the product. But when you're looking at people where you have multiple groups in the family, the idea is, you know, now when we go to resort villas, too often we go to places like Koh Samui and we have four or five bedroom villas. That's great during part of the year, during school holidays or summers. But the, the issue is that the rest of the year, you've got couples who are coming on a holiday who want to rent a pool villa. So the answers of that is maybe you're taking a, 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 a two bedroom villa and you know, two bedrooms off into a, a guest villa and, and, and split the product in so you can resell it. This is not rocket science. If you go to timeshare industry has known this for a long time because they have lock off units. So a lock off unit basically is when you, you might have a two bedroom apartment, which you could sell as a one bedroom or sell the other room as a studio. There's flexibility in it. So again, because you're renting it out and you're creating rental yields, but maybe during, during Christmas or during Holy week or other periods of time, you're going to fill a two bedroom, but otherwise it's going to be single travelers or, or, or couples traveling together. So you have basically have two, two keys instead of one. So I think you have to take that. It's a different type of product than a hotel. It's a different type of product than a residential. It has to be a hybrid between. It's all about equilibrium and product. And I, and I think that really goes to, you know, the, the work that needs to be done in advance in the thought management in, in, in design development and working on the feasibility, the highest and best use studies for the right product. And, you know, sure. particularly in today's times when, you know, the economics of that development needs to be very structured, very organized and, uh, you know, geared towards, you know, selling price, uh, development costs, and then ultimately the, the, the ultimate yield, if it's a, if it's not, if it's a, a lease back product or, or the quality of the product, if it's going to be a whole ownership product, Bill. Right, Tim. Um, Bill, we, we, I mean, um, guys and, and Bill and, and team, you know, um, I, I'd like to thank everybody. We, we've got so many questions. I'm just going to, going to fire a few more and go on for a few more minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's sure, okay sure. Because, uh, you know, it, it, you know, I'm, it, it, it's good that we've got so much interest. Um, there's a lot of um, questions in the same theme, um, Bill, and, and I think we should try to position them. I know you touched on it in the presentation, but a lot of people are asking about premium, premium for, for brands. What sort of premium um, can people expect from a real estate perspective, um, in, from a branded residence or a, a condotel type product versus selling um, an unbranded uh, whole ownership product? Again, uh, you know, it's, it's important that you're not trying to just, you you can't blankly talk about a premium because sometimes you have a hotel next door to a branded residences. And to me, the premium is you want the same type of customer. You know, if you have a five-star hotel next to a three-star condominium, it doesn't make sense. So you want to have a customer base, which elevates your hotel and elevates your, your residential as well. So creating a common base premium. I mean, the reality towards premiums also is hotel companies will say we make 30%, but the reality is many of these projects also have better developers, better locations. Okay. Somebody who's developing a, a, a five-star luxury branded residence probably has a better location than a competitor. So their premium pricing is better. But also you have to look at also in, 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 in our research, it usually comes out in Asia anywhere from 20 to 30%. You know, we see it go in certain cases down to 15, but we are seeing premiums. But premiums not only in pricing, premiums also in terms of sales pace. And when we do market research, we look at market absorption. Because again, it's nice to have premium pricing, but if you can't sell it, it doesn't matter. So again, where are those pricing points? And also, I think the importance also is when we look at developers of luxury properties is for premium properties, they, they want to take that customer base onto other projects. And when you're looking at creating premium pricing points and, and having the same type of customer, if I develop a luxury, a luxury customer's base, I want to move into my next project and create reputation. So if I'm getting that hotel brand Hotel brands tend to, to, to give you better building management, building services. That's not a knock on institutional services or anything else. You've got good mass, mass building management. But the, the element of having hotel services is it's at a premium level. I get, I'm buying in a hotel brand. If I'm buying in Raffles Fairmont, I'm assuming I'm getting 
better housekeeping services. I'm getting better access. I'm getting better security. So that's an add-on to your long-term uh, capital value. And that's important too, because what the premium also has to equate to is how is that impacting my long-term value? Because if I'm in a luxury, if I'm a raffles Paramount, what's my resale value of my property? It's not just a function of location or perhaps other things, but it's also a function of how is this perceived by the marketplace? And am I getting a premium capital appreciation long-term? So it's, it's a long-term play. Again, you're talking investment yields, but you know some of these times you're all, you have to look at how to, how to add to property appreciation as well. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And, and, you know, following on from that, Bill, there's the, the, again, there's a number of questions relating to the premium of, of, of investment. So, I mean, if, if one is going to build a Marriott or a, um, a branded residence versus a standard residence, you know, tip, tip, typically um, what's going to be the, the additional development cost um, um, that, that the, the brand standards um, of, of the brand are going to, going to, um, insist on to, to be able to deliver the product. And I think that's, I mean, you have, um, I mean, that's no different than oper yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no different than operator selection. Does it cost more to build a Marriott? Yeah. It has better standards. The other thing is you have to study the hotel market, not just the residential market. When you look at the marketplace you're in, if I'm building a hotel in Cebu, I want to find out what international brands are there and how they compare and how they, how they, uh, how their rates are, how their, how their, uh, occupancies are and how they're comparing to the marketplace. I understand it's going to be more expensive with the international brand, but maybe I'm also outperforming the marketplace. I have to form a view. I have a hotel investment. That's what drives it as well. So I think you have to take a perspective, but not just, it's not just an ad hoc, you, you know, look at that catchment market, your competitive set in hotels. We say, who are my competitive set? That competitive set is based on similar ho size hotel rooms. It's based on similar brands in the marketplace. If I look at an STR 10, it, it looks at location, it looks at perspective. An ocean view property or beachfront property has a different competitive set than an off beach property as well. So there's other elements to that competitive set as well. And again, it's not one size match as well. We worked on projects raising from Novotels to Citadines with branded residences that have been very successful long-term as well as working with luxury brands like Almond or Six Senses of this type of product. So again, you've got to take hotel eyes and look at this as well and say, what's going to be viable? If the hotel element doesn't work long-term, your premiums aren't going to work out. There's no point to do it, okay? And you have to weigh that. But it's not always a cheaper developer. Sometimes we also see perhaps international branded people who give a franchise and give other points of view. We are a little wary of projects where you have 100% of the units being sold out because the long-term viability of these units, you don't have daddy. Who's going to maintain this to a hotel standard? And five years from now, your, your individual homeowners are simply not going to want to reinvest with the same appetite that a hotel owner who's going to own an asset for 50 years is, right? You know, their exposure is less and their appetite for reinvestment is less. So again, you've got to match those priorities. Thank you, Bill. Um, just, I mean, I think one one more question on um, on, on the branded residence play, and then uh, just just a, a general question in in terms of the the, the hotel hospitality industry, um, Asia Pacific, you know, post COVID. But there, 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 again, there's a there, there's quite a few inquiries and comments with with regard to sort of the legal structuring of the branded residence product here, how one protects the residences, how the the brands. Um, um, insist on certain legal structures. Is there any sort of, you know, standard uh, template or, 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 or any recognized international standards that developers should be considering? One thing that we find, and we work across you know, 14 Asian jurisdictions is A, obtain legal advice, okay? <laughs> We're not lawyers. We'll give commercial advice. One thing we understand is there's no global standard or regional standard. There will be a Philippine standard of what you can do and can't do. I think sometimes where hotel branded real estate struggles is, is, is with condominiums when there's a juristic act for condominiums and there's certain homeowner rights. And this goes down into drilling deep into those homeowner rights because when you're, when you're entering into a hotel agreement, a hotel operator wants surety. They want a 15-year agreement. They want 20 years or they want 10 years, depending on the tier of hotel. They want surety. And you have to ensure that when you're selling to buyers as well, that you're able to give that continuity. You're able to give them those rights, which are going to extend with a hotel into the hotel branded residences for the same period of time. You don't want to be fighting your homeowners, right? So I think you, you've got to go back. And that's why sometimes it's hard to mix non-mandatory with mandatory rental units with a hotel. Sometimes you have to say different, different schemes work. There's not one scheme that works for every project. But if you have, you want to align ownership goals. And if you have buyers who have bought into your scheme for investment returns, they're aligned to a hotel perspective. 
But if you start adding homeowners who are saying, I want to live in my residence, I want low common area fees, and I want the cheapest possible, and I'm comparing to my friends who own a 100-key condo and their maintenance fees are X amount, and I'm paying double that because I'm in a hotel. You do, Again, you're not aligned. So you have to have alignment with your property buyer so they're after the same type of things. Otherwise, that's going to be a recipe for disaster. But I think the interesting thing we don't see broadly used in the Philippines is leasehold. Leasehold gives you a lot more control for developers over projects and a lot more unity in the uh, in the incentives. So I think that's something we see in places like Thailand where you have a leasehold structure. We're selling leasehold villas, say in a banyan tree project, and they're part and parcel of a hotel. It's a lot more controllable. You're not fighting a legal structure. But again, there's there is no one size fits all. There's not one legal structure that fits. You just have to understand that projects where you're selling leasehold elements are different than when you're selling a, a condominium person. Understand the nuances of that and do your research. Thank you, Bill. Okay, I mean, I think that, I mean, we'll wrap up the, the branded residence stuff there, but before we end, Bill, I mean, a lot of the uh, guests today uh, um, have obviously noticed that, you know, you, you, you've been sort of attending and, and hosting a number of webinars with regard to the hospitality industry during COVID and post-COVID, and there's a tremendous amount of questions um, about where the industry is going, when it's going to recover. I just wonder, just as a wrap-up, Bill, you can give us just a, a, a few of your um, yeah. um, thoughts on this, some of your, uh, you know, the, the information you've picked up from everything yeah. you've been doing and talking to people in the industry across the region, because clearly, you know, everybody is, is, is desperate to sort of make decisions on when mm. things will get back to, the, to a normal, but a new normal, I guess. Mm. So some insights, yeah. Bill, perhaps. Yeah. I think our question is for tourism players, real estate players, or hotel players, it's time to get back to business. It's time to spend the narrative and start understanding a reopening process. We've seen crisis before and we'll see crisis again in our lifetimes, but we have to understand what that process is. Clearly, domestic demand is the first to pick up. And that's where we're going to see the, the first green sprouts of travelers coming. These could be business travelers. They could be un, uh, untapped vacation demand as well. But domestic is going to lead everything and airlift, restoring the airlift routes to places like Cebu, to Pahal, to Davao, to Palawan. This is going to drive business. You can't stay there if you can't get there. In a broader standpoint, we also see it's interesting what Australia has done together with New Zealand, creating these bubbles of travel. You know, we've seen the mainland being, being restored in terms of domestic travel and when will they travel again? I think one thing we know from SARS and we know from 1997, 98, sorry, and is that domestic travel comes first and then we see regional travel low-cost carriers, low-cost faster. So you're going to see people coming in from mainland China. You're going to see the low-cost carriers come in from Korea. It's regional travel. The long haul is going to have to wait. The mice business is going to come later. But it's also going to be this short-haul business. So you really have to fish where the fish are. If you're selling property and you say, we have to marginalize and not just sell to Filipinos, you're going to have to look to China. You're going to have to look to Korea. You're going to have to look to markets whereby, you know, the nearest is the dearest in this case point where you can sell real estate to these marketplaces or tourism offerings and fish where the fish are. We see Malaysia simply being an AirAsia base of being a rich source of business as well. And look at these regional markets as well. So I think that's gonna be critical when we see this recovery, but it's really, it's impossible to forecast because when, when is it gonna stop? If I fly to Manila when the airport opens, am I gonna to have to quarantine 14 days in, in Manila or not? When I return back to Thailand, do I have to quarantine as well? It's interesting, we've seen Singapore this week start talking on a regional basis, how are Asian governments gonna to work together on creating these bubbles and opening these bubbles where Asian regional travelers can travel with surety between regional destinations. One thing for sure in 2020, it's a domestic and a regional picture. It's not a broader long haul picture. You know, that's our estimate. That's our feedback from the market. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I, I agree with you totally, Bill. And, and those economies that have a strong domestic uh, tourism business, Philippines being one of them, and, yeah. I, and I firmly believe that should be the focus. Um, let's focus on those destinations that are driving distance from, from, from resort and ur urban experiences and begin to build back slowly and, and get people um, more activated and uh, um, uh, back to back to being used to traveling. I guess I, I think it's important. Every time, so, I mean, a word here would be if if people have certainly questions going on. You know, NAI is a great resource as well. Certainly, uh, you know, with C9, our details are here as well. If you have questions after the seminar, drop me an email. I'm Bill at C9HotelWorks.com. 
Timmons in the Philippines, NAI, RCL, certainly a great group to work as a real estate advisors in that country. So, you know, let's continue the discussion and everything else. But I think, you know, our one message thing today is it's, you know, it's time to start looking forward and planning our businesses. Real estate is important. Tourism is important. Tourism for the Philippines uh, is the gateway to your destination brand. Have, having more fun in the Philippines. You've got to start focusing on business issues and get back to work. And while it's going to take time, it may not, may not start today or to the day after, but start focusing on strategies towards reopening as they come, okay? That's the messaging. Yeah, I agree, Bill, and, and thank you for that. And, you know, I would just like to take this, you know, a, a short forward to thank everybody that's attended today. And, you know, um, it, it's never good to have to make an apology, but we've had so many questions, Bill, that it's impossible for us to get to them. We could be here all day. Um, what I will commit to do um, together with Bill is, is we'll consolidate all these questions. We'll come back to everybody. We'll, we'll, we'll be distributing a copy of this report to everybody um, that attended. And as Bill said, you know, both, both Bill from C9 and myself are available to everybody to, you know, either on a call um, or over the email to be able to um, uh, talk about opportunities and uh, creating roadmaps um, to move forward. Um, um, either in branded residences or in hospitality in general. But, you know, we all, we all stand together. We all need to work together. Um, we will see through this. And, you know, like Bill said, um, you know, I've been out here um, probably not quite as long as Bill, but I, I've been through um, Asian financial crisis. We've been through tsunamis. We've been through um, global financial crisis. We've been through SARS. And, you know, guys, I've never, ever... Um, seen anything come back as strongly as Asia does. So, um, you know, I, I, you have to remain confident and, and, and I always remain confident that Asia's got the, the capability, you know, to drive hard and to come back strong. So it's, it's all very positive, but it's just going to take time. Great words. I'm going out for another coffee. I'm all done. And as we said, Philippines, great economy, love the market. And again, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a rebound. It's going to take time, but you know, fundamentals are strong. So, Great news. Have a good day, guys. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, everybody.